Welp makes a memoir, a war memoir. Is it sufficient that it was about that period or should there be certain elements in it? Welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Ishan Taylan. This episode brings together interviews with Yashar Tolgajora, Edem Aldem, Nicole Van Oos and Johan Strauss at Fighting Under the Same Banner, Memories from the Ottoman Theatre of the Great War Conference, held in Istanbul in September 2019. Convened by Yashar Tolgajora and Richard Whitman and jointly organized by the Department of History at Boğaziçi University, and the Orient Institute Istanbul, the conference highlighted the significance of the personal experiences of the Ottomans in the Balkan War and World War I. Armenian officers' memoirs do not necessarily fit into these national narratives, although they had their own hopes, own hopes for rising in the social hierarchy in our imperial hierarchy but their suffering is also quite different along with autobiographical texts memoirs diaries and correspondences non-textual sources mattered greatly and it's postcards it's posters it's pins uh, it's um, lapel badges it's it's all sorts of objects some of which are prestigious and are given out by the state the others are being sold out and used generally to finance the war in the first part of the episode we will talk about the personal narratives and hear from Yashar Tolgajora on an Ottoman Armenian officer's memoirs and Nikol Van Oz on the female reminiscences of the Balkan Wars and the Great War. Yashar Tolgajora is an assistant professor in the Department of History at Boğaziçi University and Nikol Van Oz works at Leiden University as a student advisor and is an affiliated researcher of the Leiden Institute of Area Studies. First of all, Let's turn to Yashar Tolgajora to hear what an Ottoman Armenian officer's memoir tells to its many readers. So I have been collecting Armenian officers' memoirs for some time, and I have translated one in the past by an Armenian officer who was educated and trained in the Ottoman Military Academy, Harbiye, before World War One, even before the Balkan Wars, and had fought in the Balkan Wars. And since then, I have been collecting those memoirs written by Armenian officers or reserve officers. And the source I have at hand is uh, by an Armenian named Armenak Melikian, or as he calls himself, Melikshah. He was one of those many Armenians or thousands of Armenians who were conscripted into the Ottoman army during the mobilization and he was a reserve officer he was a school teacher who was trained as a reserve officer cavalry reserve officer during the seferberlik or the ottoman mobilization for war his story is quite interesting and indeed a fascinating life account after being trained as a cavalry officer he served in different fronts and indeed the famous battlefronts of for the Ottoman victories such as Gallipoli and Kut and then he fled to the uh, he fled to, from the Ottoman army in 1917 for a period of three years he served in the Ottoman army 
His life story after his desertion is also quite interesting. He was in Russia, Manchuria, and he ended up in Fresno, where I believe he wrote his memoirs. And and what is also quite interesting is he published his memoirs in 1977 in Tehran, most probably due to his connections with Iran that he established during the World War One, while he was serving there. So I've been interested in the memoirs of Armenian officers in the Ottoman army for a number of reasons. One of them, or indeed the most important of them, what are the different ways in which we can deal with those memoirs which do not necessarily fit into the national narratives? So it doesn't nation necessarily fit into the Armenian national narrative, uh, which I can talk more about if you want, as well as they don't necessarily fit into the Ottoman or the Turkish national narrative as well. For the Armenian national narrative, which is more or less a kind of a period of hope that came with the 1908 revolution, then frustration due to the developments in the following years, and of course the trauma and uh, uh, suffering during the World War One and for many revitalization after 1920s, either in the US or in the uh, Soviet Republic of Armenia or somewhere else in the uh, Middle East. But the Armenian officers' memoirs do not necessarily fit into these national narratives, as although they had their own hopes, own hopes for rising in the social hierarchy, in the imperial hierarchy, but their suffering is also quite different because they did not suffer in the same way that the rest of their community and the nation suffered during the World War I. So this is what I find the most fascinating aspect of these memoirs, as we see someone writing years after the World War I, talking at length about his experiences as well as certain cases, his successes in the Ottoman army. and. I was very interested in in understanding the psychology of that person, like why someone would be interested in writing about their life achievements. And indeed, he also talks about the achievements by using that word or successes during his training uh, on the field fighting against the British, for instance, in the case of Armin Akmelikian. So the issue is usually... uh, in terms of the relations, when we approach the relations of Ottoman Armenians to the state or to the other communities, the issue of loyalty is one of the main issues discussed in the scholarship, right? For obvious reasons. But in the case of the Ottoman army officers or the Armenian officers in the Ottoman army, the issue of loyalty is very complex because we see someone who fought in the Ottoman army, who talks about the the Ottoman army and especially its commanders in very high terms. And he fought, as I said, on the front. We see someone who deserted from the army as well. So how can we fit into those? And as well as while these things things were taking place, that is while he was being trained, while he was serving in the front, then his family was deported, although they were exempt from the, they should have been exempted from the deportations. Uh, his family was deported. So how can we approach this issue of loyalty and that's a quite an interesting issue and I believe that the soldiers' memoirs, Armenian soldiers' memoirs gives us uh, the much more complex view of the loyalty 
that the question of the loyalty, or at least they, it compels us to ask different questions about the loyalties, because they are not stable or static entities or the ideas or concepts or feelings but they change based on the social context and the one's experiences and indeed after I read the memoir over and over while I've been working on it I noticed that maybe we should come up with new terms rather than just loyalty and disloyalty because they do not encapsulate the feelings of someone and especially the source we have at hand is something written years after or even decades after that those feelings those experiences were lived and those feelings were felt so it is it's not that easy for historians to reach those feelings as it has been already multi-layered now let's turn to another social group whose voice has been less heard in historiography. We will hear from Nicole Van Oz about her work on the female reminiscence of the Balkan Wars and the World War One. I've been doing a lot of research on Ottoman women during the First World War. And so far, I basically um, did my research by looking into newspapers, women's periodicals and other kinds of sources. And I was actually kind of convinced that there were not very many first-person narratives. And um, when Richard invited me, I actually told him, like, well, there is so little that I don't think I can give a paper on that, a serious paper. So I asked him, can I do another topic? And he was a little bit late in responding to my question. And I started to look actually on my own bookshelves at home. And I found much more than I had expected to find. Nicole Van Oz's findings in some of these first-person narratives by women are indeed unexpected. They are memoirs or uh, sometimes they were diaries. So I found that actually in my own collection I had quite a few ego document forms of uh, narratives by women on the First World War. On the First World War period, let me say it that way. Because what I also found was that some women hardly referred to the First World War. They were chatting about family, about persons in their surroundings, and the war hardly was mentioned in their books. And that was especially the case for the books written by palace women. Obviously, they were so isolated from society that they hardly referred to the war, very interestingly. Other women did. A very interesting book was the one by Medea Kaira, she was a very young girl, 12 years old, when the war started, and she was living in Trapson. In that, that sense, it's quite an exception, because most of the books were written by women who lived most of their life in Istanbul, some of them actually in um, Selanik, but most of their lives in Istanbul. And Medea Kaira was an exception, because she lived in Trapson. And she's actually telling what happened to Trapson, and, uh, and that's very interesting, because Trapson was bombarded by the Russians, by Russian ships. So she's telling time and time again how they have to flee from Trapson into the surrounding villages to flee uh, the, the bombs from the Russians. And how in the end, because they are fearing that Trapson will also fall to the Russians, that they in the end decide, the whole family decides to flee from Trapson to uh, Giresun and further beyond, and they end up through Ankara in the end in uh, Istanbul. So that's a very interesting narrative and different from the general narratives we know about. It's said to be a diary, a gunluk, but if you look at it, it's 
memoirs. I mean, the way it's written, they are memoirs, and it must be have been written not during the time, because also the way she is writing, it's not the writing of a 12-year-old girl. But very interesting. Another one which was not situated in Istanbul were the memories of Pakiza Izet Tarze, well-known in Istanbul because she, she was one of the first gynecologists to open a clinic here. She wrote her memoirs and she published them uh, as a private person, so they're not very easy to find. And she was born relatively late to have memories of the First World War. She was born in 1910. But uh, she remembers how uh, she lived in Adana towards the end of the First World War, 1918. So she was about seven, eight years old. And she talks about the abundance of food there, fruit in the gardens, and she remembers how the French entered the city and how they had to leave to go to Konya and from there onwards. So those are two accounts which are not Istanbul-centered, and then we have a few accounts of women who started their life in uh, Selenik, like Jahid Uchuk or uh, Sabiha Sertel, who all lived in Thessaloniki during the Balkan Wars, but had to leave with their families and came to Istanbul. Um, I mentioned that Pakistan was talking about abundance, but most of the women are talking about the very poor quality of food and, and, and the lack of food in Istanbul. It's especially that black bread and very difficult to stomach bread, which is a recurring theme, actually. Um, there's a one uh, very nice little story, and I don't know what's true about, well, of it, Safiya Unuar, who was a teacher at the palace at, uh, during the First World War, she entered the palace in 1915, she recounts how she comes back from a weekend at home and she has black bread with her. Then she conspires with some women in the direct entourage of uh, Reshat to serve him that black bread. And there's a lot of uh, hassle about it later on, but he indeed sees the bread and tries to eat it and he gets very angry according to her narrative, and says, like, who dares to feed my people with this bread? And according to her story, based on that, he calls Enver and Talat Pasha and tells them to take care, better take care of the people and to feed them better. Um, there's a big fuss in the palace who dare to give him this food, and they, she claims that nobody ever found out that it was coming from her. That's one theme. Another theme is actually interesting, and that is the um, opposition between actually lack of food and abundance of food. So some women are actually telling, like you know, there's a lot of there's a lack of food, there's very bad bread, but some people do have abundance of food, and they're actually pointing at the uh, hoarding of food and how some people are getting rich out of the shortages, and how some people are actually having access to food while others don't. Also, Lucien uh, Abdul uh, Haq Hamid, uh, she is uh, writing how charities have big fundraising activities where there's plenty of food and they are actually raising money to feed the poor, which is kind of weird. That brings me to another theme in the books, and that's uh, women's organizations, which is, of course, a topic I've been working on for years. And in some of the books, actually, women's organizations are mentioned, Jahid Uchuk refers to her mother uh, being an active member of the Donanma Jemiette and the Hilali Ahmer, the Kuzalai. And uh, Laila Ajpa actually says how three 
women from the palace are active members, according to her, of some of the women's organizations, um, which is possible, but I haven't found any traces elsewhere yet. Of course, the Hilali Achmer, yes, definitely. There were palace women involved in it. Another theme was public transport, especially Shayani uh, Gyaranem, who wrote, uh, who kept a diary most of her life and also for the war years. Uh, there are um, entries. She complains about the lack of public transport and especially she cannot find the boats anymore to um, pay her visits to all the uh, palace women, which she normally does. Normally she she was used to visiting uh, princesses, etc. And she says it's very difficult to find transport nowadays, so I can't cannot pay my visits anymore. The war itself is rarely referred to, actually. So yes, there are some references to soldiers. Hassane Ulgas, in her very small booklet, it's only 31 pages, 32 pages, on her period as a, a boarder at the Darul Mualimat. She also talks about the bad bread and the bad food, actually, but she also tells how the Darul Mualimat was actually supposed to move to a new building, but how that building now was used as a hospital. And I learned, actually, f during this conference, that it was obviously the Hungarian hospital. So that the Hungarians opened a hospital in what was supposed to be the new Darul Mualimat, and that their uh, moving there was therefore postponed. Um, others are also sometimes referring to soldiers who are coming into town and who are wounded, but it's very limited. What is interesting actually is also Medea Kaira who refers to the celebrations in Trapson after the victory in Gallipoli. So that's also, or Chanakala of course I should say, uh, and that's interesting because they get the news of the victory and then there are large celebrations in Trapson. Everybody is celebrating in the streets. There are a few references to the war, but it's, it's limited in general. Um, and yes, it brings indeed up the question, what makes a war memoir, a memoir, a war memoir? Is it sufficient that it was about that period or should there be certain elements in it? Like I said, some of the palace women's memoirs about that period are not referring at all to war. It's very interesting. And uh, one of the questions is, why is this? Why is that because of the division between private and public? Were these women in the Ottoman harem, in the Ottoman dynasty, really kept so separate from the hardships of war? Were they not aware of it? I can hardly imagine it. We'll continue our episode after a short music break. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. We will be hearing from Etta Maldam and Johann Strauss on the non-textual sources of the Balkan Wars and the Great War, namely medals and the postcards of the period. Edem Eldem is a professor in the Department of History at Boğaziçi University and holds the International Chair of Turkish and Ottoman History at Collège de France since 2017. Johann Strauss taught at the Universities of Munich, Birmingham and Freiburg. From 1997 until his retirement in 2018, 
he taught at the Turkish Department of Strasbourg University. We will first hear from Etem Adam on the Ottoman martial iconography and specifically the history of Harp Madalisa. First, why? Um, why do I concentrate on this? Well, the reason is basically because I, I'm not working on the on the war, I'm not working on memoirs or on uh, narratives, so I'm a bit off track compared to what the central uh, topic is here. So what I decided when I was asked to give some kind of a lecture, uh, what I thought I could do, considering that I hadn't uh, really dealt with uh, questions of, of memoirs, uh, of diaries, or of narratives, and of written sources, and I could look at the iconography. The reason being that I've worked ex extensively on uh, Ottoman medals and decorations. I did a whole book, a whole exhibition and a book on uh, that issue, trying to prove that you could write, in a sense, a parallel story of westernization and modernization based on these uh, knickknacks, on these objects, on these decorations, because they told a story of how the Ottomans adapted to something that was preeminently uh, European, that did not belong to their culture, which they had to invent, in a sense, and while inventing, adapt to their own uses, their own needs. And in this process, which starts at the very end of the 18th century, World War I has, special, has a very special, very prominent place. First of all, because it's at the end of the period, and therefore you have an accumulation of knowledge, of practices, uh, and uh, whatever. Um, and you have an actor who's involved in propaganda, the Germans, uh, which is extremely powerful, and therefore an inspiration for the Ottomans, which is something that is common to the whole process ever since the beginning. I mean, uh, Ottoman medals and decorations, or state symbols, uh, including the crescent and the star, have all been introduced more or less directly by Europeans, by the West. By the, West. the Ottomans haven't invented anything. They've adapted to an invention of the West, and that includes, as I said, the, the crescent and the star. There's a very good article by Halil Bertay and Tulay Artan on uh, the first examples at the end of the 18th century of how the Ottoman navy uh, starts to use the crescent and the star as an official banner for the fleet. Uh, so there's a logic, in a sense, in the fact that the Ottomans, when they want to symbolize the state and they want to use the grammar of Western states to promote their image, to identify their empire, and to reward uh, meriting men, generally, and to a certain extent women, they follow a Western model. So World War I is a climax, both because it's the end of a long period of training and experimentation, but also because the source of inspiration is a very powerful one, much more than the French or the, the British, because the first examples are borrowed from the French and the British mostly. The Germans come in uh, rather late. And in, during World War I, uh, German propaganda is over the top. It's, it's huge. It's extremely tasteless in many cases. It's very violent, it's of, of bad taste, but it's, it's there. And what I concentrate on is to what extent 
the Ottomans are able or not to adapt, appropriate some of this material and to transform it according to their needs. Because, I mean, there's one basic need, which is, you know, you're not going to use a cross. So that's why they come up with the star as an alternative, the crescent, the star, both, whatever. So they know how to play with symbols and find ways of translating in such a way as to find a correspondence to their values or what has become their values also through Western uh, influence. So by and large, one breaking point is 1908. Until 1908, most of the material is state-sponsored, concerns only the elite, is managed by the state. And the best example is, you know, the 30-something years of Abdulhamid's reign. He uses metals and decorations as, you know, a carrot and a stick, basically. So much so that he ends up debasing the value of uh, by, by distributing them uh, a little too much. But that's how it works. It's a top-down kind of process. So, And you have very prestigious, very... Uh, precious material used uh, at the very top and then it trickles down but it's always a process from uh, top uh, down 1908 is a breaking point because with the revolution you start to have a new language of symbolism that of the people that of the revolution that of the french revolution liberté égalité fraternité they translate that they use it they add of course and that's another story but it's a fascinating one they need to add adalet justice because the rest won't do and they need adalet but that's another story so in 1908 you have the development of something that did not exist previously which is a demotic popular kind of discourse applied to non-official or non-state-sponsored or less state-sponsored objects postcards photographs little knickknacks and whatever this is a turning point and Uh, The idea is uh, that by 1914, if you add up 1908, the revolution, 1913, uh, the culture of defeat, as A.L. Gino calls it, uh, the trauma, if you want, of losing at the Balkan Wars, and come to 1914, it looks like the Ottomans have everything that is necessary to make the full transition to the kind of still state-sponsored but more demotic propaganda like the Germans have it. And the German examples are, you know, uh, they're they're well known. Postcards that show uh, little kids wearing uniforms and parading down the street and whatever. It's it, it, That's what I call tasteless. Uh, and it's postcards, it's posters, it's pins, uh, it's um, lapel badges, it's, it's all sorts of objects, some of which are prestigious and are given out by the state. The others are being sold out and used generally to finance the war. So it's it's a it's a whole machine, propaganda machine that works. Now, the constatation is that the Ottomans have the intention, or what it takes in terms of intention, to do that, but they don't have the means. So they don't have the technological means, the financial means, to engage in this kind of an of a propaganda operation. So most of the material that we see circulating in the Ottoman Empire 
is German or Austrian. It is produced there, but it is already there, adapted to the uses of the Ottoman population. So the, the Turkish or Ottoman flag is included. Sometimes you have captions in Turkish and whatever. So it's adapted to the local condition. The story of the harp madalyası distinguished itself from all of these knickknacks. There's one example that I stress, and that's the end of my, my presentation, which is what is called the harp madalyası, the war medal. Uh, which the British call the Gallipoli Star, because it's a star, um, which is red. It's a, it's a very flashy and very well-known to military historians uh, object. It's the medal that the Ottomans uh, invented for World War I. And what is striking about this uh, medal is, first of all, that nobody knows, but it's not the original version. It's a second version. There's a, a, there's a first version that was never issued, but we have proofs of it, and uh, it's very traditional. It's in bronze. It looks very, quote-unquote, classical. And then suddenly we realize that the Ottomans change from that model to this model, the Gallipoli star, which I find revolutionary. Why revolutionary? First of all, because it's very striking. The red color, the very simple shape of the star. The fact that you've inverted the crescent and the star into a star with a crescent on top. It's design-wise, it's really extremely radical, extremely creative. It's fascinating. And what's Obviously, most fascinating is that I find it to be a brilliant translation of the German Iron Cross. The Iron Cross, which is the most iconic war uh, award ever uh, since 1813. So it's a Prussian award, and it's a very simple one, very plain. It's this black cross with, in the middle, the monogram of the sovereign, and under it, a date. 1813 when you're fighting Napoleon, 1870 when you're fight fighting the French, and 1914 when you're fighting um, the, the Great War. And if you look at the details, if you put them side by side, they're completely dissimilar, but you understand the translation and it's perfect. The cross becomes a star with a crescent, with this genius that you don't want to have a crescent. A crescent in terms of design is difficult to ma manipulate because where are you going to put the, the star? You're going to put it between the arms of the crescent. It's, they do something radical. They turn the metal into a star and put the crescent on top of it. The black of the Prussian flag becomes the red of the Ottoman flag. The monogram of, um, what's his name, Kaiser Wilhelm, the W, becomes the Tura of Reshad. 1914 becomes 1333. There you have it. You have a, a perfect translation. And this I find to be revolutionary, fascinating in terms of design, and extremely frustrating because we don't know who did it. And this is yet another problem. I mean, you are talking about em an empire dying or whatever, but an empire that is taking the radical uh, uh, decision to modify the outlook of its war medal. You don't have a single trace of the process that led to this transformation. So the question is, who did it? My theory, a little bit because I have a tendency to 
for Ottoman bashing. My theory is that it's a German designer, but there's no trace in German archives or memoirs either. So whatever, what, what is fascinating is that you have an object about which you can say so much and nobody has, except the Germans. The Germans call it the Iron Crescent because they are conscious of the fact that this is a translation of the Iron Cross, Cross Crescent. They don't call it the Iron Star, because the point is the crescent, because it's Islamic. So they know it, but, and they do say that it is based on the model of the, uh, the German uh, Iron Cross, but they don't say who did it. There's nothing about the process. On the Turkish side, be it the archives, the contemporary archives, or present-day military historians, nobody has ever mentioned the similarity between the two, and there's no information about the decision to modify the... In fact, people don't even know that there was a first version that was abandoned. So this, what is striking to me is this discrepancy between the striking nature, the extraordinary nature of the object, and the fact that we have no documentation or historiographic uh, uh, material that addresses uh, this issue. So, two things. One is the continuum, that is understanding how the Ottomans, and later the Turks, I mean, it's always this emulation, imitation of the West kind of process. To what extent is it emulation, imitation? To what extent is it adaptation? To what extent is this adaptation uh, intelligent in the sense that it really poses the question of how do I read and translate this object or this uh, visual symbol into something that is relevant to me? Sometimes they're completely aside of the, uh, the whole notion. It's bad design in the sense that it's just an imitation. And sometimes, as in the case of this medal, it's excellent. It's, it's truly fantastic design and intelligent design in the sense that, you know, and it's a striking object and you know, you, or if you understand, if you really look into it, uh, into the detail of it, you understand why it was done there. So you have this fantastic thing and nothing to document the way in which this process was reached. So I think it's ironic in a sense that we have memoirs of individual soldiers and whatever, you know, the, the micro works well, and at a macro level, we can't even know how an empire took the decision, made the choice of designing, creating an object. We understand how it was done, but we have no documents about it. Finally, I would like to turn to Johann Strauss and his interest and work on the wide range of postcards from World War I. I encountered postcards from World War One in books in, in our family and with uh, postcards written by my grandfather to his wife, and also one written by my 
father who was still a very small boy uh, to his father and I was of course uh, thrilled you know by this uh, discovery maybe that's why my interest in postcards started and um, later on well I, I became a collector of postcards I don't know exactly why uh, but um, the period of the first world war is really particular or peculiar because it was in the history of postcards a sort of swan song. It was a period where billions of postcards were sent, but after the war a new period started and there was a visible de decline. Um, why was this so? It's obvious the soldiers in the field had to inform their families, they had to ask them uh, for for parcels or for tobacco or whatever, and of course the families wanted to know what, what was going on. So there was a constant need for, for postcards, and for some areas it was a, lack, a lucky coincidence. For example, in Salonika is now so well documented, uh, thanks to the postcards written during the Allied occupation. So thousands of motifs exist of Salonika during this period, just a few years after the end of uh, Ottoman rule, that would not exist if this occupation had not uh, taken place. And moreover, in uh, 1917, there was the big fire in Salonika, which destroyed a great part of the city. So these postcards sent by uh, British, French and other soldiers uh, to their families or postcards that may just have been printed and collected are a really precious source. This is just, just one example, but perhaps the most uh, conspicuous one. Um, otherwise, uh, well, these are mainly interesting for the topography of, of the city, but if one speaks of postcards of World War I, usually one thinks of propaganda postcards. Uh, these are, of course, very interesting uh, because they show us um, the mentality or the perception of the different uh, nations of the war, and there are, of course, considerable differences at times between German or French postcards uh, because the French, for example, felt themselves as the victims and they wanted to present, you know, the horrible aggressor, which was Germany and uh, Austria-Hungary Austria and eventually also, also Turkey, uh, whereas the Germans just wanted to show their strength and their unity um, uh, and their hope, you know, that uh, as a united nation they will eventually uh, be victorious. So there, it would be interesting to study the differences German postcards of World War One are sometimes surprisingly harmless, or uh, whereas the French and British ones are very aggressive, and this is a, an important difference. I haven't seen postcards from Russia. Well, you, you won't find them very often. I have seen a few in books, but. They were not interesting. As it was shown in the conference by several papers, the German postcards also tried to influence Turkey, or there were even postcards produced in Germany for the Turkish market. Uh, this is very interesting, you know, with captions in Ottoman 
uh, Ottoman Turkish, but not all kind of postcards, mainly propaganda postcards showing the alliance between the countries. As far as the artistic value is concerned, there are, of course, many postcards called Künstlerpostkarten in Germany, which show views of uh, oriental cities, uh, like Istanbul, of course, uh, Damascus and other places. The artistic value is not uh, very high, and sometimes they are just copied from from postcards, you know, and to give them a new idea. There are also the photographs, uh, which are interesting for the historian, uh, because they show scenes uh, of the war or positions of the Turkish army in, in, the, in the Dardanelles, visits of uh, emperor uh, of emperors uh, Wilhelm II and uh, Charles um, uh, from uh, Austria uh, now this is an endless story because some of these photographs were postcards but they may maybe only 12 uh, issues or, or 12 um, um, copies existed they were made for private use, so they may be sometimes really very valuable documents if they are not known from books or other publications because postcards were extremely popular as illustrations for books. So nobody cared about the origin. They were put as illustrations in the books, and one book I showed existed or consisted exclusively of postcards. So I can say that the study of postcards is nothing very new, uh, but it should be uh, developed, and uh, postcards uh, should be studied as sources uh, in a critical way, the same way as texts are, are studied. So one should discover that that something is copied you know, from others or influenced. And there are also these absurd fake postcards, you know, views from, from Cairo presented as uh, greetings from Salonika or f- from views from North Africa presented as uh, views from Serbia and, and so on. Um, this shows that one has to be cautious, but surprisingly enough, at that time nobody found this outrageous and even soldiers sent from Salonika um, views of Cairo without realizing <laughs> what they did. You know, so Orientalism is, of course, also one of the major, uh, major topics. What kind of Orientalism is reflected in some of these postcards? And one has the impression, for example, that there was a, an overall view what is Oriental. And so you were entitled to name postcards with views from North Africa, uh, views of Turkish Oriental, or, or, or Turkish Oriental views, or uh, Turkish Oriental people, or something. So there was no difference between Turkish and Arabic, uh, or Turkish, Turk and Arab. Um, everything was Oriental. And apparently the soldiers love these uh, oriental themes and views and also sent them home, you know, and uh, the wives and uh, parents were thinking, oh, 
with God, this is the true Orient, even if these Jews had nothing to do with the place they, they stayed at that time. So this is, um, so I, I, I quote these examples to show um, that um, one has to be careful. Uh, one of the first books on uh, Salonika with postcards uh, published by one Mozopoulos in, in the uh, 1980s uh, contained lots of these pseudo-oriental um, or postcards with views from North Africa and, and, and the editors didn't even realize it, you know, they were under the spell of the past, of the oriental, the unknown. This has changed a little bit, but um, uh, there is not really an awareness in any case, because the postcard is also a sort of religious uh, object, it's an item, a collector's item, but it, it is, of course, not a collector's item in the first place. It is uh, a document, and it, stood, it should be studied the same way as other documents. I would like to thank Yashar Tolga Jura, Etam Adam, Nicole Van Oz, and Johan Strauss for agreeing to have interviews with me during the conference and Richard Whitman and Yashar Tolgajora for having me there. For those of you who want to find out more, we'll post a bibliography of relevant works on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. I'm Ishin Taylan. That's all for today. Until next time, take care. <laughs>